Making a thing in many different mediums helps you figure out actually what that thing is. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. Today, I'm talking to Taylor Levy. Taylor's an artist and designer with a penchant for taking things apart, understanding how they work, and then putting them back together in a way that exposes their inner workings. She's an alumna of MIT Media Lab, Interactive Telecommunications Program at NYU, and Vassar College. One half of the studio CWT, the other half is her partner in art and life, Seiwei Wang. They live and work together in their Brooklyn-based studio and prototyping shop, along with their two young children. Their projects range from devices that alter our perception of time, an electronics curriculum for artists, an astrological compass for space travelers, to objects engineered to last multiple generations. Their practice centers around an iterative process of sketching, prototyping, testing, writing code, machining parts, and building each edition themselves to assess their intuitions around improving everyday experiences. And they share this process through teaching and on Instagram and Discord as part of cultivating an ethos of openness and transparency. And CWT are recipients of a 2022 National Design Award in Product Design from Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum, which Taylor recently learned is a very big deal. Here's Taylor. My name is Taylor Levy. I live in Brooklyn, New York, and I am a designer and artist. I am half of the studio CWNT. My partner Seiwei is the CW and I'm the T. And I do this work because I don't know what else I would do. (laughs) But it is what I love. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's a good reason to be doing it. Something tells me that you probably gave yourself no other options because you love this so much, which is exactly what we're going to unpack as we talk. But I like to begin at the beginning. So can you take me back to your formative years and paint the picture of your childhood for me? So I grew up in Montreal, Canada. I am the oldest of two. I have a younger brother who's two years younger than me. I grew up as kind of a person who liked to do all sorts of different things. And I was really lucky because my parents kind of threw me into all sorts of activities. I definitely was one of those people who are, I I would say, like an over-programmed child. (laughs) Um, I was really into sports growing up, um, very much a tomboy. I guess I still am to a certain extent, even as I'm older. I was also really into the arts. I was really into drawing and kind of just like tinkering with stuff and you know whether it was like 
some weird craft that was lying around um, or like melting something to see if I could make or invent something. Um, all sorts of nonsense like that I would get into as a kid. You say you were overprogrammed. Does this come from your parents just sort of understanding that there were a lot of activities that you were interested in? Or is it also a little bit your babysitter? I think it was very much my parents. I'm third generation Canadian on all of my grandparents' side. So I come from Eastern European Jewish roots. And I think my parents were wanting to give me things that they couldn't have in their life and opportunities that they couldn't have. You know, personality wise, I was actually a pretty serious kid. Like I did like my alone time. I would get into my own head a lot, but I was also really amenable to going out and trying new things. And, you know, I was pretty shy, but I somehow my parents did something where they instilled a sense of confidence in me from a pretty early age. So like, you can just go and like, try this thing and do this thing. <laughs> yeah, but that's pretty great that the novelty of trying new things was something that you got comfortable with early the discomfort of putting yourself in strange situations seems like it wore off at a young age. Did you feel like because your parents were offering you things that they didn't have access to, did you feel a little bit like they were living vicariously through you? And was there a, a synergy between your experiences and what you'd bring home and share with the family? Yeah, I mean they really sacrificed a lot for myself and for my brother. And I really felt that, I think, very deeply growing up. Having been exposed to all of this, I mean, awesome stuff, but also maybe a little bit of over-programming when you were young, how did that translate into your teenage years? And where in there did you feel like you were finding your agency I do think I have a lot of gratitude to my parents to some extent for the overprogramming as a teenager. There, There is this kind of chapter in my life where I was a very high level competitive ski racer going into like early high school. Whoa. I was also very scared of it, which is why I, why I stopped doing this. Um, probably at 15, I stopped. I, I had to go to school at a place near a ski hut at the ski hill at an academy um so I kind of like in the middle missed like a whole chunk of school and did my lessons and like tutoring separately from that I did that for a year you know on the weekends I was always being shuttled off to go and train um, or race and so I didn't really have that much time to get into like some of the things that happen when you're a teenager to a certain extent, I think like during that time, especially ninth grade, it's a turning point. At least for me, it was. And it was really nice to have this like very physical outlet that I could go and participate in at that time. What actually was the motivation for giving up ski racing? And was did that feel like, did you have to grieve that? To some extent, I felt guilt a little bit. There maybe was a little bit of relief on behalf of my parents, maybe too. But yeah, if like skiing was a different sport and there wasn't that fear element that played such a big part of it, I probably would have continued, to be honest. And the school thing was like a nice scapegoat. So did you put yourself into your schoolwork with the kind of drive and determination that you had previously put into skiing? Um, I was a very lazy student until after my undergrad. Is that because it kind of came naturally to you and you could get by? In high school, yeah. That sucks because 
I learned stuff and I'm fine now, but you know, when I got to college, I really felt it. I felt that the students I was like my classmates in college were way more prepared than I was because I didn't really apply myself in school. And I kind of went to a school that maybe you could get away with that. Like that was really noticeable when I went to college. Speaking of college, your undergrad was at Vassar. You studied film and computer science. What were the highs and lows of your college experience? Yeah, I don't know how this happened, but in my parents' like agenda, they, from a very early age, knew I didn't even know that I was going to be sent away to school after high school. When I finished, I had a boyfriend for like a couple years who was still in high school. I didn't want to go, but I did all the motions and I applied to the school and I got into a school that was a really great place to be. When I got there, I was very homesick. And growing up in Montreal, you know, I had like already done that, like drinking, hanging out socialization, like the drinking age is younger then. And so people have a lot more freedom for that at that point. And so when I got to college, I felt it was a little bit shocking, to be honest, because it really felt like all these people were like jam packing this like moment of getting away from wherever they were and like really wanting to be there right then and there. And I was like, I don't really want to be here right now. And I'm really sad. I was overwhelmed by the whole thing and I wanted to be back at home. How long did that last? It lasted pretty badly. The first semester, the second semester was much better. Did you feel like film and computer science was nourishment for your brain? The film thing sort of felt like you could do this technical-ish thing also, also do some creative work. And I had this mentor from summer camp from when I was like 12 years old. She was my counselor at summer camp and we became really close friends. She went to Brown at the time and she was studying film. And I was like, I just want to do whatever she's doing. Kim's awesome. <laughs> so that was where I first, my first entry point into film. And then the computer science thing came as like, I was curious about that field and I tried it out and I really loved it. Um, it was really hard. Okay. So undergraduate sounds like it was kind of tough and not your favorite chapter of your life. <laughs> like a lot of it was really good and a lot of it was hard, but I wasn't really finding myself within any of these spaces that much. Then what did it feel like upon graduation where you're like, now what do I do with myself and with this major? Yeah, I had no idea what I wanted to be, but I did know that I didn't want to go and get a job in the film industry. And I was kind of like afraid of any job, to be honest. I went home the summer after graduating and I was always the type of person who would kind of like come up with different project ideas. I realized this like during working throughout the summers of undergrad, actually, that I valued being able to have an idea and, and to execute on that thing, whatever it was at like a very, very young age. I did move home after college. First summer after college, I started a company with a friend where we were computer tutors. It was called Computer Tutors. <laughs> and this essentially resulted in me getting like one pretty big client and forming a relationship with like an elderly person who I would go to their house almost every day for a few hours. And I was company too, in the end, like at the beginning we had more clients, but this really evolved into me just going over very consistently to this person's house and helping him out. I did this probably like half a year, a couple times a week. So that was one of my jobs. 
And that was an entrepreneurial endeavor because that's something that you you built from the ground up. Did you learn from him as well? Yeah, I did. One thing that I did, did specifically learn from him, I remember this. He was writing an email one day and he was like, always start your email with, I hope you are well. Don't ask it like a question because <laughs> you're not going to get a response to that question. Just offer your hope towards them. I, I do that now, often <laughs> in some form whenever I, when I have communications. So that's one mark he, he left on me. How did you sort yeah. of grow and evolve from there? I also had this other company idea that I started when, like that summer also. And it was this company called Pod Peels. It was at the time when the iPod had just come out. And I was going to make these like covers cases for them with sublimated graphics that were like drawings I was doing in Photoshop of like sneakers and like skylines and designed these like little pouches for iPods and then like my laptop as well and went throughout all of Montreal and like sourced the fabric, the fabric printer, cutters and sewers. I found like a person who printed little labels and I would have those sewn in and I like designed all the parts for them, designed my business cards, <laughs> designed packaging. I would package them in these like cassette tapes because they were like exactly that size. It was time to start selling them. And I had them in two stores and I was like, I'm done with this. All the fun of it had happened. I had like solved and made the thing, but I was like, I don't want to be in this business forever. And I'm, I'm just done. That That's a crucial experience though, because you, you really learned where the fun in it was for you. And it wasn't necessarily the like gaining momentum of the business after you'd done all the problem solving, even though sales is its own problem to solve continually, but you're more into the tangible aspects. Montreal is a really small city and I was really nervous about going into stores and talking to people about this thing that I made and like I didn't want to be rejected. I felt like embarrassed and shy about it and I really didn't like that and so I just like ripped the band-aid off. I cut my losses. I was not willing to do to do that part of things. Is that still the case? I, yeah, I have more perspective on it now that I'm a grown up. Like I can talk to people now. If you don't like something, like tell me why. <laughs> or, yeah. Like let's talk this through. Everybody's going to have their w strengths and weaknesses, and being cognizant of it is at least half the battle. You, as a fledgling entrepreneur with your first design project, but you weren't a trained designer, so this is something that like you just pulled yourself through out of sheer curiosity and gumption. What did you do after that? My boyfriend and I broke up. It was very tragic for me. I also had another side project with a friend. We were making a documentary movie about an up-and-coming jazz singer. Her name is Nikki Yanofsky, and she was performing at the Montreal International Jazz Festival. And our movie was kind of culminating that summer at the jazz festival. I was working on that um, and had this like lovely friend who was my partner. She's an amazing writer, storyteller. I was going through this really hard breakup, still doing stuff with my computer tutoring. I was like getting more into like learning about web programming and Flash at the time too. I was, I'd also at the time was spending a lot of time like reading blogs, like Cool Hunting, which was a huge blog at the time. There weren't very many. And I remember seeing Cool Hunting visited ITP where I ended up going to grad school. 
um, interactive telecommunications program at NYU, Josh Rubin, who's one of the founders of Cool Hunting, did this piece on this artist, Tristan Parrish, and his drawing machines that were being shown at the ITP show. And I was like, what is this? I saw that, submitted an application that was really a bad application. I didn't have anything. You know, I had like kind of the things that I'd been doing over the years, but like, I don't think I submitted even a portfolio. Sent this application in, forgot about it completely. And then one day in like November, I picked up and I was like, I'm moving to China. I was like very, very heartbroken from this breakup still. It had been like months at this point. And I was like, I just need like a change of everything. And I don't remember what the impetus for this was, but I was like, I'm moving to Shanghai. And I literally booked a flight that left in like a week and with no return ticket. And I had coincidentally my best friend from childhood who I went to school with my whole life, but we we weren't great friends in high school and college, but we were like super, super close friends as children. And she lived a few blocks from me. I wrote to her and I was like, you're in Shanghai, aren't you? And she was like, yeah. And I was like, I'm moving there. I'm coming in a week. And she was like, great. I need a roommate. I just had to like leave this master's program in Beijing. Let's do this. And I was like, amazing. So I moved there with no return ticket, supported myself through teaching English on the weekends. Like she had just quit this English teaching job. And I essentially was her replacement for it, which was really nice. Wow. That sounds like the most impulsive thing I've heard. It was a huge turning point. I really needed like a reset and a change of scenery. I needed to be alone when you don't speak a language that's as different as Chinese is from English or French. You really can be alone in like the most profound way. I experienced that there and I like really it meant so much to me and it helped me. But I was alone, but I was also safe because I had this person who we still are very dear to each other. How did it help you? It helped me heal from <laughs> this relationship in many ways. I, I think when you're in an environment that you get used to, you start to think about yourself in terms of all of these things that are outside of you that you know so well and that you're comfortable in. Like you start to define yourself by like your friends or your family and even like define yourself by the people that you don't know and don't speak to, but are still there and near you. But when you're in an environment that I guess is so unfamiliar for me, it forces you to feel yourself and really like get to know who you are. And you don't have these outlets of these spaces where you're, you're safe and where you're familiar and comfortable. And I think that that's, that was like a very profound thing for me at that time. Yeah, it sounds like it. I'm sure there's aspects of it that helped you forge your identity. But separately from that, it sounds like it helped you see yourself without the filter of everything around you so that you could know what was truly you, what was real Taylor versus what was the reflection. Yeah. And it also let me just like feel things too. I didn't have like expectations on a day-to-day basis. How long did that chapter last? Six months. During that chapter, I got a letter at my house, I guess, from ITP to say that I had an interview scheduled. And Midori, who she still works at ITP, she was like, she called me one night in the middle of the night and did this interview. It was in the middle of the night for me. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, I don't even know what just happened. I like definitely like made this person think I'm really crazy. (laughs) I did get into the school and my parents received the letter 
And they were like, you're going. And so I went back and I moved to New York and that's where it all got good. (laughs) That's a lead in. Let's hear it. (laughs) Going into ITP, I had a lot of preconceptions of what I wanted to do. This is like so embarrassing to say, but I wanted to have like a web startup, probably. Like if I was to name that thing, all of my imaginings were like to like have some web web related startup business. You know, ITP is the type of place that people come from all different backgrounds and they will support you. You know, if you're focused and you just like are into something, it could be like rubber ducks. It could be building the next Facebook thing like that's sort of how it was at the time if you're into it like they will there's people there to support you I think that was what's so beautiful about the place because very early on I felt like I had permission there to try these things and try being a person that I didn't even know was a possibility I started making art projects from I guess like my first semester in I didn't like do it on purpose and I didn't call it that even then. Um, and I remember having a talk with my dad at some point and like telling him what I made. And I was like so excited about it. And he was like, oh, so it's art. And I was like, <laughs> silence. <laughs> like, I guess so. My first semester, I made this piece that was it's called 24 Switch Pixel. And it was 24 light switches arranged Um, in a row that controlled the RGB, the red, green, blue value in binary of a single pixel. I was really excited about it. And I was really interested in this idea of creating with technology and like figuring out where the person sits within these like spaces that in this case, like I was taking something that's traditionally imperceivably small, you know, like the bits of inside of the computer and um, placing it at human scale where you actually physically have to move and can move and rearrange bits. So I was just, I was very interested in this idea of like, where does the person intersect with these express tools and specifically technological tools that can be used as a means for creative expression. That, that first project like went off really well at the like final show at the end of the year. But my second project that I was like really, really excited about, it was essentially like, built this like little pinhole camera and this like LED that would, I would control with like a motor and some software that would go on and off. I turned like the tiny bathroom that I had at my apartment into like a, the interior space of a camera. That's kind of like how, but also the world too of the light as well. Um, And I was like controlling the light. The only source of light was this single LED that I would like turn on and off and take these like three hour, three to five hour exposures. And I would like sit in this dark bathroom and every night, I think it was 24 of them, 24 exposures I did in a pack. And like I would sit, I'd sometimes I'd do two a night um, and then I'd expose it. I'd develop the picture right away in the bathtub afterwards <laughs> it was a really small bathroom so I'd sit in the bath and like wait as my software ran to the exposure sometimes I would like mess with the camera a little bit too, develop it and then like be done with it and then do a new one and it took probably like half a month to make all of these things and I was like so psyched about them and I remember I like had a really nice spot at the show to show them but nobody had seen them the reaction from people at a show, like in the in the context of 
ITP and like there was all these projects that were very more obviously technologically you know there was flashing lights and like robots and all this stuff and I had just these like lineup of like 24 black and white photographs that I really liked like I I still like really like them they're like in a box somewhere and they've never seen the light of day since but I felt very much like the sting of like this isn't what people want to see here it felt shitty at the time I still today I'm like curious about why that is and I want there to be a space for that in the world of like media arts. It sounds like a moment. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. Do you ever wonder if it wasn't just the output, just the photos that you made, but if it was also documentation of your process, that it would have helped people sort of have access to it a little bit more? Yeah, you're completely right about that. And like, I did take some photos of my bathroom. It was a bad way of installing that work. I guess that's an important distinction within you to kind of make work that you really like, that you're excited about and proud of, that doesn't get received well. And so that dissonance there is almost something you have to learn to be comfortable with because it sounds like it didn't make you feel in any way like you had done bad work or, or question yourself as much as it just felt really uncomfortable to work so hard on something that nobody else really got or appreciated. I didn't recover from it right away. And like my next pieces were very much ones that like used the material of electronics as a way of like literally expressing my some ideas 
it, it was more like bookmark that stuff. <laughs> Hopefully one day I could go back to it. I was bummed about it, actually. It was like a longing of like, why, why can't I do this? So I want to get into your life as a professional. And I know there's a, there's a whole chapter about MIT Media Lab. Can you kind of walk me through why that was important? How that led to you becoming a professional? I think we were professionals before MIT. Like we started our practice before MIT. So Sewe and I, we met at ITP. We became really good friends actually during that second semester of ITP. And we started working on like side projects together. Our first professional project was with someone who's a dear, dear friend today, still um, a woman named Kira Alexandra. She's an artist, graphic designer, um, runs a studio called Work Order. They are awesome. At the time, she was working on the party for Obama um, right after he had gone into office. And she wanted, she had this vision where she called Sewe up into, through Kevin Slavin, um, she called him in and first of all, she didn't know who Sewe was. And he met with her on Christmas Eve of 2008. And she was like, I have these huge screens. I want it to look like all of like the media is just like very quickly, like exploding on to these screens um, that will have like giant laptops next to them. And I want it to feel like Twitter is coming through it. And I want there to be like live cell phone feeds going through it. Pretty much every single interactive media you could possibly imagine in 2008, she wanted to have to be like flexibly controlled and played through these massive screens. She came from more of a TV background and, you know, like programming something like that in the TV way is a very challenging thing. Um, and even at the time, like there wasn't such thing as like JavaScript frameworks at the time too. She had this like massive checklist and say, it was just like, yes, 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 yes. I could do all this. And then he like called me up and I was like working on this internship in Arizona over the Christmas holiday at the time. And he was going to visit his family in Tokyo. And he was like, I just said yes to this project. Can you help me do this? And I was like, sure, this sounds cool. Like we could just build this through JavaScript and like control all of whatever inputs she wants and have like players for them. And we'll just be in the background controlling them with a keyboard it was like this epic software project, like really, really <laughs> epic and like thrown together at the time. I still like when I think about it, it like makes me it brings me so much joy, like very nerdy joy um, <laughs> of like having made this thing. Like it was really fun. And a few days before the actual event, like Sewe and I were working really hard and Kira was like, I need to see it. Like, please come here. I need to meet Taylor. We show up at her house like four in the afternoon and we show her and we're like, we're still working on this stuff. And we ended up spending the entire night. She was like really nervous that we weren't going to get it to work. And she just kept like feeding us and like ordering us like sushi and like giving us good drinks, um, like teas and whatnot. At like two in the morning, I was like, we're not leaving, are we? And he was like, <laughs> so. so she like kept us captive for like, 16 hours coding at her kitchen table and we've been friends ever since both with her and me and Sewe. That's kind of the beginning of us spending like very intense working moments together. Okay so it sounds like the collaboration and the collaborative dynamic with Sewe started first. We know that 
he's also your life partner and the father of your children and you're a family as well as a studio. So things go really well from, yeah. from that kitchen table forward. Sewe was like, I like you. And I was like, I'm not ready. I don't like you. Um, so there was a little <laughs> bit of that for a few months. Yeah, we ended up um, having like a romantic relationship started, I guess, like about six months later. You know, with Sewe and I, we were such good friends at school and he's a very easy person for me personally to be with and you know I've been in relationships in the past that have made me feel like I can't be who it is I am and Sewe always lets me be who I am and that was life-changing for me not that we don't have our issues we have tons of issues but thank um, you (laughs) that means you're human yes did the romantic relationship also sort of accelerate this idea of collaborating together as a formalized studio or were they, how did the two of those work in harmony? It felt just like very natural, to be honest. Um, we started our studio after we graduated, we were both like, we don't want to have like full-time jobs. We want to like figure out how we can continue this like energy that we had from grad school of like continuing to make things that we want, um, but also figure out how to support ourselves. And so at the beginning, we just said yes to every client that came along. And one of those clients was this man, Bobby Silverman, who's a ceramicist. And he was like, I need a website. So we made him a website for like $500. And when we visited him in his studio, he was like, why don't you guys get a studio here? Like, let's go look around the building. He introduced us and we found this like 200 square foot studio that was $400 a month. It was the bathroom alcove. That literally was the address, BA501. It like made it real. And we had like our money from our first website, which was our money for the first month's rent. And we needed like insurance to rent a place there. So we formed an LLC because we had to, and it just kind of all went from there. How did the clients start rolling in? We were really lucky because of like ITP, I would say. Our mentor who introduced us to Kira. At the time, there was a lot of like weird software projects that were happening, like big interactive, mobile interactive screen stuff. And that was kind of like our jam. And so every like six months to a year, we would have one of these pretty big client projects and we'd work like really hard on it for like six months, heads down. And then we'd have like a little bit of flexibility. We'd still have obviously free time. We didn't have kids at the time. You know, in our free time, we could like make other things that we wanted to make. And this is for context, this is around like 2009, 2010. Yeah. You're a multidisciplinary medium agnostic studio. You're making a lot of products that are really conceptual and really profound, but also maybe don't exactly have a pathway for distribution or an ideal user or something like that. So talk to me about how your studio operates and the kinds of products and projects that are coming out of your studio. You know, I'd say at the beginning, it was like 80% client work on software projects that we weren't very passionate about, but they paid the bills, 20% free time fun stuff. And we really wanted to figure out a way to skew the amount of time we would spend on stuff that we enjoyed and also make the stuff that we enjoyed into things that we could make money with. Um, We got really lucky because Kickstarter was just starting out at that time. And so we had made this product that we launched on Kickstarter in 2000. 
10. We had a lot of success back then. I think it was one of the first design projects to be on the platform. That was Pentype A. Our original goal was to sell 50 of them to our friends. And like we were like, no, there's no way we could do this. And we ended up selling over 6,000 of them. Oh it was gosh. it was insane and like pretty life-changing for us. It sounds like because you sold 6,000 and you had to fulfill this, but didn't necessarily have ma- manufacturing in place, that's the sort of, oh shit, of like, okay, now how do we fulfill all this? Yeah. Therein lies this like incredibly difficult, pressure-filled, messy crunch. Yes. Sounds like you sorted it out. <laughs> and, and then probably from what you, I'm, extrapolating here, but what you learned from that experience also you took with you into the next projects. Yes, we we <laughs> learned so much that we now, we got to a point, I think, where we overcorrected so that if we, and when we used Kickstarter on a next project, we knew, A, that something would go wrong that we would not expect, so we were prepared <laughs> for that eventuality, but we also knew that we needed to have like all of our ducks in a row Um, from the get-go. I think like that's where Kickstarter as a tool starts to get less interesting because it's a place now where a lot of big companies who are already established, they use it as like a marketing platform. And I think like they've tried to do things in the past years to make it as like more of an integral part of the creative process. And like you don't necessarily have to have all these things lined up in order for you to put something out in the world. But, you know, People think of it, of it like a store, and it's it's a really it's a difficult thing. It's a difficult tool to use because mostly what people are pitching is a is a prototype. They have the prototype. They need the financing in order to get the ducks in a row. If it's truly part of the creative process, yeah. If you already have your ducks in a row, then you're just using it as a marketplace. Yeah, and for us as a studio, you know, like we. We have a house that we're set up in a way that we have like machines to prototype pretty much anything we want, like in our basement. You know, that is something that we realized was valuable to us, like very, very early on this, like the speed of being able to go from an idea or a sketch to like the thing in your hand within a day that is like instrumental to the way we like to work. You know, I think that moving forward, I, we want to make that streamlined, not just to a thing that's like a proof of concept, but to a thing that we could actually put out in the world, but all within this like very, very close, small loop. And that's kind of like where we're trying to tighten that loop as the years go by and like refine it so that we can be as quick as we want to be and as expressive as we want to be and make things that aren't necessarily mass appeal goods, but like our help tell a story or like reveal something about or change your life in just like a slight way that changes your perspective on something in a way that's like really meaningful that there hasn't been a something to help you do that um, before. Well, one of the ways you do that is through the products that you design that deal with time. I wonder if you can unpack that a little bit for us. And you said earlier on in our talk, there was a moment where you you really decided that owning your time was important to you so that you had the space to kind of explore your own ideas and execute on them. And then there's another moment in time where you did these really long exposures, like sometimes two in a night. And 
time has to stand still while you're there in the bathroom, like waiting for the camera to capture everything around it. I can see that times had a impact on you, but I'd love for you to describe some of the products you've made and how it changes your perspective and your relationship with time. We have three, three timepieces right now. One of them is called Time Since Launch. That project actually started as Sewe's thesis while we were at, or as one of his thesis projects. He's actually done two theses on timekeeping. The idea behind these timepieces is really, we look around us and like we mostly have like our cell phones and watches and clocks as ways of keeping time. And, you know, time is something that's universal really to everybody. And I think that that's like a really beautiful part of it too, is like no matter where you come from, how much money you have, what your life story is, like that's a ground that us as humans can all connect on. But we don't really have any tools around us to like change our perception of time or help us with our understanding of time or our relationship to time. You know, we're mostly constrained to this like 12-hour clock, which seems like really arbitrary when you start to think about it. And um, we're kind of just asking this question, like, what would it be like if you had something that had a device, a timepiece that would connect you to a time scale that was like way bigger than not only like your day, your second, your moment, something that's humanly perceivable, but completely outside inside the realm of your, your lifespan um, or even like five generations from now. And so Time Since Launch is this product. You get this device and you pull a pin when you're ready and it essentially helps you launch an epoch. That moment that you launch the pin is like your moment zero. And uh, some people, like the easiest way to explain it is like a lot of people are like, oh, I want to launch my epoch when my kid is born. So they have this thing that they can refer to that shows how many days, minutes, hours, seconds since my like I was born. We like to think of it also as just like, yeah, a lot of people get them when they get married and like make it part of their wedding ceremony. So they have this device. And I should also add that it counts 999,999 days. So almost 1 million days. And that is 1,023 years, I think, or 24, something great, like way outside of the scope of our lives. This thing is like engineered in a way that the batteries, like the single battery, the batteries that it comes with will last for over 40 years. You can hot swap them because there's backup capacitors on the device that you can take the batteries out and within a minute, just put new ones in and it'll keep time. If ever it breaks, your moment zero is burned into the EEPROM of the chip. So you could send it back to us and we'll be able to, the code is also open source for this project, but you'll be able to recover that moment zero from, um, which is like a GMT timestamp at any point if the thing ever breaks. So what I think is so profound about it is um, not only is it sort of beautiful in a technologically sexy way, but what's profound about it is it makes anyone who pulls a pin or connects with it in any way think of themselves in terms of their own personal epoch. I don't think I've ever really even considered time in that way. I certainly have considered myself to be one small granule in the middle of an epic, but mm-hmm. not that I have my own or that, 
this moment in time in which is my moment zero that I'm pulling this pin will frame it so that I'm cataloging all the moments going forward. And I'm in that way also paying attention to the evolution that's happened since then. And I, and I have that moment zero to always mark it. I mean, I think that's so poetic. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify in store. Shopify POS is everything you need to sell in person. From payments to inventory, Shopify unites your sales into one commerce platform. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash retail 23. Shopify.com slash retail 23. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast. And I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ultimately, this is a sort of poetic, you know, symbolic work of design, but it's incredibly engineered so that it actually functions <laughs> in the way that you've designed it to. You're not just making a kind of artistic statement with it. You're backing it up with science in, in such a way that makes the poetry real. I hope so. Thank you. <laughs> I think so. There's an, an incredible amount of effort, energy, technology, iteration that goes into something like this in order to really make an artistic statement. You're kind of sub subverting this whole capitalistic model of product for money. And it's also, I mean, in many ways, too, trying to subvert this whole capitalistic or top-down model of, like, time being something imposed on all of us in, like, BC, you know, when we 2022, like there's these like structures that have been imposed on us and we're kind of just like offering the possibility for anybody to have new tools, new ways of looking at things, you know, new, new ways measuring of, and marking devices. New ways yeah. of measuring. And also like, I really liked what you said too, of a lot of the times, like we, we, as humans, we like to think of ourselves as these like tiny blips or like grains of sand. And like, I think that that perspective is really important, but there is also an important perspective of giving yourself permission to be important. I like elevating that humanity and uh, giving tools to people to elevate their own personal humanity and agency and their impact within the broader picture of things. So another one of your products that I'm sort of fascinated about is a is called Super Local. It's another time marking device, but it's a little more practical, but in the same way, it's 
taking the clock that is so generic and applicable to everyone and customizing it so that it actually demarks your day or counts your day in a way that's more meaningful to you. It's so simple and visual. And I've spent, I'm sure we all have spent a gazillion hours trying to find the right to-do app or time-blocking app or calendar app that helps us sort of manage our time. But it's not something you can just look at the clock and say, oh, you know, it's almost time to pick up my kids or, Mm -hmm. oh, it's almost time to start meal prep. And in such a way that's so unobtrusive, there's no ding or alert. It's almost like in the background so you can constantly have a little bit of a sense of where you are in your day, but without being beholden to it. Yeah, that is very much what we're going for. You know, it's a 24-hour clock, which isn't revolutionary. You know, people have made 24-hour timepieces before, but it's also, it begins with a blank face, right? It can be jarring. Like the first, the first time I actually started using it, I was like, it, it was confusing to me to even just get used to that 24-hour face. Um, and I was like, which things do we put down first? And very early on, and I recommend this to everybody who has one, is just put down where you go to bed and where you sleep. And just giving yourself like a visual cue and awareness of how much of your day is spent awake and how much of your day is spent asleep. It's like there's breathing room all of a sudden within the clock. And every moment is not treated as like this tick of equal weight, you know? Um, and I really want it to emphasize that like space to breathe. Um, and you know, there's parts in your day that you can then add, like I do have pick up my kids from school here. Kids, like I wake up, kids wake up, kids go to bed. I go to sleep. Like those are the things that I do. And then I can look at the whole thing and it's all of a sudden like a diagram of transitions, um, for me during the day. And, I can ignore it essentially until it's time for those transitions to happen. When it, when it is time for a transition, no, it's not dinging or vibrating in my pocket. It's a suggestion. But I think that's actually what's so powerful about it is that you can ignore it until there's time for a transition. Without it, I find that I have to keep checking the clock and calculating how I am, how far I am until my next transition, how much time I have to do this task or something like that. And um, so there's a beauty to have that silent diagram just there that you can refer to and kind of know the rhythm of your day without having to do any sort of mental work around it. Your studio is the two of you. You're also a family I would love to get into your creative process, but before we dive into like the granular details of what that looks like, I do want to acknowledge that in 2022, this year, you were recognized with a Cooper Hewitt National Design Award, which is a pretty big deal. Um, And so congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. And this must feel like the opposite of that moment at ITP where your photographs were not received. (laughs) Very well. I mean, but but honestly, I would like to ask you how how has this recognition landed for both you and Seiwei, like both on your hearts and your psyches and in terms of validating your work? I guess I'm interested in the more human aspect first, and then we can talk about maybe if it's changed your studio at all. This is a huge deal for us. I've never said this publicly, but you know, when we got the notice that we were invited to submit a portfolio 
I thought it was like one of those design awards that you get solicited for. And Sewe saw it and he was like, did you see this? And I was like, oh, I don't know. And he was like, it's a big deal. And I was like, oh, because I don't come from the design world at all. We're not like award people. We're just like trying to get by with our studio every day. <laughs> like we don't have time to seek out these opportunities, unfortunately. You know, it was very out of out of the blue for us. And Sewe was like, no, it's this is a huge deal. So there was this... Sh- me just understanding the um, gravity of it, I guess, was um, a big thing. But then also it was like a really nice opportunity to kind of like take inventory and sit back and like put together our body of work in a way that I hadn't because, you know, we're just like moving forward all these through these things and doing things. We don't often take moments to just like take a second and step back and really like look at the bigger picture of what we've been doing and then like write about why we are doing this work. So on top of everything, like I'm really grateful for the opportunity to kind of just like pause and do that, which was a really nice thing to come with the award. It felt really nice for Sewey and I to have this together. Well, not only is it revisiting all your projects, but it's also like with a magnifying glass and like finding all of their defects and, and also having to like, regurgitate all of the difficult emotional origins of these projects that you already have given birth to. Mm-hmm. Um, you, it's almost like re-giving birth, I think. And then, <laughs> and then also with a really like critical eye, reorganizing your children <laughs> and <Yeah>. editing them. <laughs> it was a very intense process and like a tumultuous couple of months that we spent doing that. Say it was like, it doesn't even matter. Like, we're not going to win this, but like, maybe we'll be finalists and like, let's just do this. I'm really grateful even for the Cooper Hewitt for noticing a practice like us. Cause we kind of, because we work across so many dif- disciplines, like I feel like people don't know where to put us sometimes. You are difficult to categorize because the nature of your work is so undefinable. That's also, I think, what makes a lot of what you're doing so compelling. Yeah, thank you. And I'm, yeah, I'm just really grateful for like the Cooper Hewitt and like the jurors to be able to see that, you know, and like step out, step outside the usual like comfort of their existing definitions for a design studio. And like for seeing us, it really means a lot to us. Well, congratulations again. Hope it sinks in and changes you in some way it'd be interesting if you were to pull a pin from the moment you won and sort of see if that kind of recognition and acknowledgement actually does influence your evolution in some way yeah i'd love to talk about your creative process so much of it is available for anyone who wants to witness it to witness it because you you're really transparent and you share everything you document things obsessively Can you talk about, A, the importance of documenting? But before we even get to that, like, just give us an overview of how you and Seiwei work together. From your your website, it says that your practice centers around an iterative process of sketching, prototyping, testing, writing code, machining parts, and building each edition ourselves to assess our intuitions around improving our everyday experiences, which I love, by the way, that's really clear. But I actually want to go back to underneath it all and talk about your intuition to Mm -hmm. start. 
the the products that we've already talked about do seem to come from a very intuitive place of how do we make the way that we're moving through the day have more ease or breathing room, as you've said. How do you acknowledge these intuitions, discuss them, and decide which ones to assess? Sue and I both work very differently. I'll tell you a little bit about how we both work because it will help make it seem plausible that we actually get anything done. Intuition is very much like an important part, as you were saying, of our creative process. Everything that we make is something that we want for some reason, whether that's like a very practical everyday thing or something that's more of a poetic, not necessarily traditionally useful thing, but I feel like it's useful, even if it's not useful by the traditional definition of utility. You know, I'm a lot slower with my process. Sewe is very fast with his process. Our utility blade is probably the best example of this. He was like, I, like, I want to make this thing. And I was like, I don't want to make a knife. <laughs> like, <laughs> I just like flat out objectively do not want to sell a knife on our website. You know, he made this thing. And I was like, you know, it, it actually like he showed it to me. And I was like, I actually really like it. It's awesome. And that will happen often, like for both of us, like I'll come up with a thing that I have this idea and he'll be like, mm, he's more positive than I am normally from the get-go. I poo-poo his ideas a little bit too much sometimes. It's kind of mean, but he like overflows with like confidence and, you know, this ability to just like throw things out there and like be cool with it and be cool with like messing stuff up. I'm, I'm like very protective of my time because of having kids, especially it hurts me in a way because I can be very slow and like private about things more than him. It takes me time to come up with like the thing that I want to do. Yeah. Our process looks a lot like, like sketch stuff. We use fusion 360 to make 3d models of most stuff that's physical or, you know, back in the day. And I, I don't do this that much anymore, but like I think like we both use software too as a way to prototype like ideas and like functionality of things. I used to do this a lot that like you can build a model of something quickly in software and just like see very quickly like how using it feels, like, you know, before you have the thing in your hand. Making the thing in many different mediums helps you figure out actually what that thing is. If I ever get stuck with something, like I'll switch mediums immediately and like try working on it in a different way. That's really good advice for both myself and my students. So do you switch to, to writing or to software or to 3D modeling or to paper and scissors, whatever, yeah. whatever you need just to get, just to get into it. a different flow? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Most often it's writing because that's like the most practical, useful thing because eventually we'll have to write about whatever it is. So I know that that will be of like some utility later on. But yeah, switching, it all feels like the same type of making to me, but it helps you it helps you understand the thing. About eight years into your studio, you and Seiwei kind of formalized your guiding principles and wrote them down. And I wonder if you would share some of that or unpack some of that with us. Um, it's funny because we made those guiding principles probably like really, really early on. It was also like a switching medium moment really for us. Like, you know, you're making things, but like, and you're building a studio, like let's write about the studio. 
and see what that looks like even. And these guiding principles, it's funny because like we did look at them. We look at them every so often. Like sometimes when we give talks, we'll, especially to students, we talk about our guiding principles. So we always have to look back at them and make sure like, do we still check, check? Is that okay? I think it's kind of cool because they have stood the test of time so far for us. Some of them are like really obvious. Like I feel even embarrassed saying them, but I guess you can read about them if you go in the blog post. But one of them that I guess has the best story behind it is um, buy lots of lottery tickets and also requires explanation. So Darius Kazemi um, gave a talk, I think at XOXO one year, where he's an artist of all types, but at the time, you know, he would make all these like Twitter bots and some of them would be like, go viral and groundbreaking and some of them just like didn't fly but it's this sort of idea of like don't think of everything you make as like the be-all end-all solution to you know life or like whatever whatever your studio is just like keep buying lottery tickets keep making things sometimes I guess they hit big we're not even like looking for the thing that hits big Seiwei, I guess it's more of a Seiwei thing. Like he just is constantly making stuff. And I think the constantly making stuff is an important thing because it doesn't have to be like a thing that's necessarily going to sell a gajillion of them. But you could make a small amount of them and like really impact a group of people in a profound way. I think what was so powerful for me when I read it, too, is this idea that there's no correlation between how much time is spent working on a project and the ultimate payoff. Oh, yeah. The underlying ethos of this statement is that you you keep making stuff, you keep trying, some of them fail, some of them work. Just because you spend a lot of time on it doesn't mean this is going to be the thing that pays off. But... If you treat it all like they potentially have the chance to pay off, then you can feel kind of lucky and passionate and optimistic about every project, as long as you also keep it like in perspective that not all of them are going to be winning winning lottery tickets. Like that feels like a very healthy way to pursue creativity. And it is a little bit like gambling, but you have to be willing to invest yourself because if you half-ass it, it's definitely not going to pay off. So you have to invest yourself as though it's going to pay off but not kill yourself if it doesn't. And the payoff, of course, varies, right? It, it depends. Like, it may not be received well by, in terms of sales, but maybe you'll get a Cooper Hewitt National Design Award, like, several years later or something. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. the payoff is kind of a moving target in and of itself. I think the fact that you two chose to stay small and are, like, unapologetic about it is also a very important piece of this because you kind of from the beginning you understand what's fun to you and where it starts to lose its fun and you will not compromise that at the same time you also really carve out space to be who you are which includes a family and that there may be snack time in the middle of a zoom call if if that's what happens (laughs) that's that's what needs to happen which i think is really refreshingly full spectrum human so the the fact that you kind of just call it out and own it is, I think, really powerful. One other thing I really want to talk to you about is this idea of sharing everything. It's part of your DNA in terms of even why you like to work. It's You like to see how things work, and you like to make that accessible. And so sharing is part of that. I wonder if you can unpack that one a little bit. I feel very 
privileged that we get to do what we do every day. Like even thinking back to like what my parents were allowed to do as jobs, you know, they weren't, they weren't allowed to have jobs. Like my dad wasn't allowed to have a job like this. His father was not allowed to have a job like that. And I feel like there's a certain generosity that like we have to have to show other people as much as we can like uh, and model for them that it is possible to um have a creative practice in your life and show like kind of every different facets of that maybe it's not your whole life but i think like showing people glimpses of it and showing glimpses of like how we make a certain thing will help people identify pathways to you know potentially use like similar techniques or just really give access to and maybe unearth like some part of their creative process that's not going to look anything like ours my like ultimate goal is like really to just show people that if they have something in them that they want to get into the world or they want to let out of themselves that like kind of like break down as many barriers as possible for them that we can i mean you know there's an internet now and so there's lots of those barriers being broken and there's like amazing tools out there now that weren't here 10 20 years ago um that give access also but for me i like sharing because it helps to show how these things can be possible and how they come to be it also helps you just connect you with the thing that you know if somebody does buy something that we have just having access to like really how this thing came into the world is really important and valuable and like as a culture we've become like very disconnected to that you know as somebody who like you is interested in the inner workings of things i think it's both poetic that that shows up in in the products of your labor but also really powerful that it's in your execution of everything that you do too. And for our listeners, you can witness a lot of this on their Instagram, which is at Charlie Whiskey Tango. We do have an Instagram, but we also newly have a Discord for our studio. Say we actually had this idea a few months ago and I was like, I don't have the bandwidth to like have another thing. <laughs> um, it's hard enough to have Instagram, but our Discord, it's its not super crowded, but it's pretty cool. We have like a few hundred people on there, I think now, and people share their works in progress. We have one, one channel on it where there's somebody who's like remaking our solid state watch, who's like, you know, bought one. It had like remeasured the whole thing, has like a 3D file, and is like, we have some actual technical problems with making these things that we've like stopped making them because we haven't been able to solve it. And so we have this person who's like been experimenting for the past couple of months on like, he's making his own solid state watches at home. And he like posts pictures of these things every day with like different movements in them. You know, like I had no idea what this discord would be like, and I didn't want it to just be like more work to do it's so beautiful to have like a product that's being made publicly by like this person who bought the thing and he's just like making his own version of it. I don't know where it's going to lead, but like, like when else would that have ever been possible? Right. right. I just think it's, it's really cool. And people also like share projects that they're working on, whether they're electronics projects or design projects. Somebody posted like a light that they made the other day. And it's just kind of nice to see. And it's like a, it's a nice outlet for 
folks who like making stuff. Um, yeah, and it sounds like a nice way to kind of expand the community and the passion around what you're doing um, and not have to just be the sole content provider or the sole like sort of voice of expertise as you're putting out what comes from yeah. your studio. It's in more dialogue now with the things that other people are doing. And that seems really fun and really fertile. Yeah, it's been really cool. I'll put a link to it on our website. Throughout the course of your work, you've clearly developed significant creative agency on land. I think in space too. I think you've done some projects dealing with space Seiwe and has, time. Seiwe, yeah, Seiwe's side project is space. And you navigate the uncertainty of the design process on a daily basis. So I'm wondering where you would place yourself on the adaptability scale. And what is the thing that can still unravel you? Things are really good unless like, as long as everybody's healthy in my family and my friends, stuff is fine. Like that's all I need. It's a big ask, but that's, that's it. Otherwise I'm pretty adaptable. So what's on the distant horizon? Where do you feel like you're evolving? What's your soul pulling you towards? I mean, my soul is still pulling me in a lot of ways, like back to those photos, um, weirdly. And I have been like manifesting some of those things very quietly for the past few years. And I've like given myself some, sp not as much, but I've taken chunks to give myself permission and space to do more personal creative projects that I know I just need. They make me feel like human and alive and they're not for anybody else, but they're really explorations about, you know, what it means to make with technology. And that means like painting and carving with stone sometimes it's part of my teaching practice too, um, is exploring these ideas with students. Yeah. So there's, there's, I, I just have quite, I'm curious like how that's going to take form in the future for myself and for how it's going to come into CWNT. I'm looking forward to that too. Thank you so much for all your candor, for sharing your, your story. And I feel like I've learned so much from you and about you. And I think it's exciting that it starts with skiing. There's something that's really improvisational and symphonic about sports, right? And very mm -hmm. adaptable and responding to your environment. And I can see that you are still an athlete. You also have this incredible sensitivity for the world around you. And you've carved out protections and guardrails for these really ephemeral ideas like time and intuition and so in many ways, I feel like you're doing it in the best of all the worlds. Aww. So thank you. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you so much. That really means a lot. Hey, thanks so much for listening. For a transcript of this episode and more about Taylor and CWNT, including images of her and her work and a bonus Q&A, head to cleverpodcast.com. You can listen to Clever on any of the podcast apps please do hit the follow or subscribe button in your app of choice so our new episodes will turn up in your feed. If you can think of three people who would be inspired by Clever, please tell them. It really helps us out when you share Clever with your friends. We love to hear from you on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find us at Clever Podcast, and you can find me at Amy Devers. Please stay tuned for upcoming announcements and bonus content. You can subscribe to our newsletter at cleverpodcast.com to make sure you don't miss anything. 
Clever is hosted and produced by me, Amy Devers, with editing by Rich Straffolino, production assistance from Ilana Nevins and Anushka Stefan, and music by L1011.